Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guest's life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. Every journalist has a list of guests that would be their absolute dream to sit down and talk with. This week, my guest is at the very top of my own list. It is the journalist, podcaster and author, the formidable Elizabeth Day. In this episode, we discuss how failure has ultimately led to her biggest successes. After eight years... I started to realise that I had to be the one responsible to make a dramatic shift in my life. And it happened to coincide with some seismic changes in my personal life where I was going through a divorce and ultimately unsuccessful fertility treatment. And all of those things sort of imploded together. And how the plan life carves out for you is often better than the one you could have imagined for yourself. Elizabeth Day, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Thank you for having me. I love the Radio Times. I really do. And it's a delight to be on this podcast. Well, I have to say, um, I did an interview with Aidan Turner maybe about a year ago. And I was going through the archives looking for kind of previous clippings. And I'd found an interview, I think, that you'd written or reviewed. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's Elizabeth Day. So it feels very full circle today. Me too. But that's part of the reason I love the Radio Times. Not only did my beloved granny, she was a, a religious subscriber to the Radio Times, so I always used to read it when I stayed at hers. But when I went freelance, they were the first people to offer me a contract under the editorship of lovely Ben Preston. And I had a wonderful time. It's such an incredible publication with a sky-high circulation. And you get access to all these massive names like Aidan Turner. And generally, people have very fond feelings towards Radio Times. So I had a lovely time writing for you. And now you're so right. It's full circle to be speaking to you. I know. And now you're the lovely guest that we get access to, which is amazing. So let's start with what is the view from your sofa? Well, normally speaking, I say normally because I've just had to move out of our home for building work, which has been very unsettling for a homebody like me. But normally, the view from our sofa, it's we have the top room in our house, which is dedicated as a sort of media room. It's also our office. And my husband's very into massive TV screens. So we've got this huge TV screen suspended on the wall and we've got a green velvet sofa and we'll both sit on that sofa watching TV of an evening until my husband decides it's too uncomfortable sitting next to me and we'll go and lie on the floor. (laughs) He goes and lies on the floor. I then get, it's a very happy coincidence for me because then I get to stretch out on the whole sofa and Delightful. our ginger cat Huxley will sometimes come and lie on top of me. So that's that's generally what it is. Yes, Huxley of Instagram fame. We're, yes. we're all a big fan <laughs> of your cat. Um, what have you enjoyed watching recently on telly? So much. So obviously I've been watching Happy Valley along with everyone else, but I've been waiting until every single episode is available because I know that I won't be able to restrain myself. And I was an early adopter of Happy Valley. I absolutely loved the first two seasons. And I now feel slightly possessive over it when lots of other people are discovering it. A bit like when you really liked an indie band that no one had heard of and then suddenly everyone, it's Coldplay. Um, So I've been loving Happy Valley, but I haven't finished the season three yet. And I've been very careful to avoid any spoilers online. Mm. And I just think, you know, Sally Wainwright is such a terrific, humane writer. She writes in the way that people actually speak. And I find that a very rare quality. I love her dialogue. And obviously the performances, James Norton and Sarah Lancashire, you couldn't want for more, but the supporting cast, I've been loving Happy Valley. I've also been loving Yellowstone on Amazon Prime with Kevin Costner. Are you watching it, Kellyanne? Is it the 
it's set on a farm in America. Yes. And this, yes, my boyfriend is obsessed oh, with it. And now it's so I'm, good. <laughs> I've only seen one episode and there was just a moment that really sticks clear in my mind where one of the girls has a bit of a, I think, a bit of an episode, um, you know, not feeling very good and about the death of her mother or it's yes. an anniversary and she's in this bath yes, outside. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, okay, same programme. Right. That's Beth played by the phenomenal Kelly Riley, who's a British actress, but puts on an incredible Montana accent. So it's essentially succession with cowboys. And it is absolutely riveting and brilliant. And I didn't think it would be my thing. And then I was on a long wall flight and I gobbled up five episodes in a row. And now I can't get enough of it. So I'm watching that. I'm on season two of that on Amazon Prime. Um and then, apart from that, you see, I'm, I'm born for this podcast because I just love <laughs> TV so much. I love reality TV and I watch a lot of Real Housewives and what in America is referred to as Bravo content, but which I access in the UK through Hey You. So uh, those are the things I'm watching. And The Apprentice. I'm also watching that and enjoying yes. the season. Love The Apprentice. Uh, I have to say, Real Housewives, I, that's the kind of thing that I used to watch when I was sick from school. You know, yeah. <laughs> like a lot of like daytime telly where you'd get you'd get something that you just yes. that and Jeremy Kyle. It's yeah. uh, it's, it's the sick telly, but it's really good watching and it's a nice break. Yes. I think it's brilliant. I think <laughs> I genuinely feel that it is the equal if not beyond the best scripted drama around because it's so vanishingly rare. I'm talking about the American franchises. I'm not as big a fan of The Real Housewives of Cheshire. Um, but the American franchises, it's very, very rare that you see groups of women in their 50s and beyond interact on mm. screen. And luckily it's getting slightly less rare, but it's still something that feels really necessary <laughs> And yeah. to see these friends interact and go through huge life changes like widowhood, um, yeah. dating post-divorce, fertility treatments. It's the first time that I've seen things like that represented on screen very often. And also it's camp entertainment that I am completely riveted by. And I will then listen to a podcast afterwards that dissects in rigorous yes. poach match analytical detail that particular episode. <laughs> well, I have to say, I mean, I've just done it there, really. But I think because the way it's kind of marketed or the way that you first hear it, it does sound like, oh, it's it's silly telly, you know. But actually, like you're saying, it does have these these searing, tender conversations about, yeah. about things that often, you know, things that are branded as women for women by women can can be put into this category or this camp of... Of, oh, it's it's not as essential or it's silly or it's secondary or it's background. And actually having a space, however it's done, even if it's done for entertainment, if issues impacting women and alike, yeah. then so it should have space and it should be taken seriously. Could not agree more. And genuinely speaking, as a novelist as well as a podcaster, I get so much insight into human behaviour from watching those women. And I actually write about them in my new book, which is a non-fiction book. It's called Friendaholic, and it's all about my addiction to friendship. But it's also about the social history of friendship and what it means. And it's an attempt to give this very complicated but important relationship in our lives a language. And I talk about The Real Housewives of Atlanta because there's an iconic scene in The Real Housewives of Atlanta where Cynthia Bailey asks Nene Leakes to sign a friendship contract. And I remember watching that at the time and thinking that she was absolutely out of her mind. <laughs> Who on earth would get someone to sign a friendship contract? And the older I've got, the more I've thought that she was ahead of her time because yeah. actually it would be super helpful if we knew, when we meet someone that we like, if we knew what they expected from friendship because so often they expect something different and then you're left feeling like you're not meeting their expectations and actually yeah. we should just lay it all out in a, in, a, in a verbal contract. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I grew up watching Sex and the City and I think, again, seeing different kinds of female friendships and the importance of that. And I think, I mean, we'll come on, we'll come on to it in more detail when we talk about your book. But I definitely think something that stayed with me was there's that quote, I think it's Charlotte and they're all sat around a table and they say it and she says something along the lines of, you know, maybe our soulmates aren't men, maybe it's, it's each other. And you do, in that series, you see men come and go, but the ladies 
yes. are always there until just like that happened. And then I know, although I watched and just like that on a long haul flight. And I think when you watch on a long haul flight, generally your senses are sort of heightened and yeah. your critical faculties are possibly not all there. And I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I sort of yeah. re-watched it and I was like, actually, it's much better than I thought it was. Again, because it, ta- you know, and I happen to know one of the writers on that show, Samantha Irby, who I'm just obsessed with. I love and adore her. And she's a phenomenal essayist. And she's also a former guest on my podcast, How to Fail, and we've become friends. But I happen to know that she's a huge fan of The Real Housewives. And I could sort of see that influence mm. on some of the writing. So I actually think, and just like that, was unfairly attacked and that it and it warrants right. rewatching on its own terms, not necessarily seeing it as a sequel. I mean, I definitely, I'll just clarify, I meant my comment was, you know, friends, there was the four of them. And, and oh, I see what three. you mean. Yes. But, yeah. Um, because I do agree with you, when I first watched it, because for me, it is Sex and City sacred material, yeah. um, I was harsh. The first time. The second time, I was like, no, come on. It's yes. a, it is a different show. Same characters, different show. Yes. And there are elements of it. The writing, brilliant. Some elements of it, you know, it's not going to be for everyone. But it is, like you say, it. I was more impressed with it the second time around. And it was funnier as well. Oh, I love that you that was the like same a little bit, take. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was not going to let that one go easily. Yeah. Now, I wonder, <laughs> when you're watching telly, who controls the remote? Does Justin have to watch Real Housewives? No. Uh, So he... Well, that's a really good question. I think he controls the remote and I'm constantly turning down the volume because he puts (laughs) it up too high. So then I'll sneak the remote from... I'm on the sofa at this stage, he's on the floor. I'll take the remote without him noticing and just turn the volume down just a little bit. Mm. But we have vanishingly few programmes that we agree on. So, yeah, he doesn't watch Real Housewives, but he's completely non-judgmental about my passion for Real Housewives, which is genuinely one of the reasons I love him so much. It's just really lovely to be with someone who is non-judgmental in that way. Um, But he has got into two reality TV shows. (laughs) Actually, three. One is Below Deck, because... Brilliant TV. Yeah. He loves Captain Lee, so I don't know what's going to happen if Captain Lee retires, but he loves Captain Lee so much that I once got a cameo video message from Captain Lee for Justin's (laughs) birthday. (laughs) Um, Vanderpump Rules, which British viewers might not be familiar with, but it's a spin-off of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills character, Lisa Vanderpump, has a series of restaurants in, in LA, and it follows the lives of the waiting staff in those restaurants. And uh, Million Dollar Listing, which is a real estate show, sort of the forerunner of Selling Sunset. So those are the reality TV shows that we agree on. But um, the other the other areas that we agree on are sort of documentaries, particularly sporting documentaries. I love a wonderful documentary and I really love a great sporting documentary. So we watched The Last Dance mm. during lockdown and recently got very into F1 Drive to Survive, which is just brilliant. Um, so that's, so, but yes, I would say when we're watching, Justin has the control closer to him because he's better at technology. So if anything goes wrong, he'll know how to fix it. (laughs) I have to digress it because I wanted to tell you, I listened to the series finale of How to Fail with him. And I have to say, it's actually something that me and my friends have spoken about. And my best friend, she, she recommended it to me because she was like, oh, have you listened to the the episode finale? And I was like, no, I haven't. Um, And she said, it's really, really good. And she said to me, it's the first time I've heard man speak so openly about struggling with, with his body. And I listened to it. I thought it was so poignant. And I think, you know, for someone who who might be more private, it was such a brave thing to do. And I think that's really wonderful. And it's something that, you know, I've encouraged male friends to listen to. So that's Thank a side so note. Much. He that will mean so much to him. It really will. Yeah, he's amazing. I also saw him. I'm gonna sound like a creepy <laughs> mega fan now. No, I can't get enough of I it. I came to see um Magpie. You did I think it was at the Barbican. Yes, I came to, he the, came to that night. That was such a special night with Dolly Alderton. That book. Oh. We're gonna come on to later when we discuss your books. But I saw him in the crowd and he is such a wife man. And I was like, <laughs> Yes, Justin, 
You're a king. He is. Oh, you're so lovely. Thank you. That means the world to me. Thanks, Claudia. Back to chat rather than me fangirling hard. Um, what was your first ever TV memory? My first ever t- property. Oh, no, my first ever TV memory. This is so going to date me. I'm actually embarrassed. <laughs> We didn't have a colour TV when I was when I was really little. So it was a black and white TV. And I remember watching Blue Peter on this black and white TV. I must have been about four years old. And I loved Blue Peter. We graduated to a colour TV. But I remember I always used to... I used to have a really nice routine. My sister and I would get back from school, from primary school. And we would just bed in to watch TV from like... 4.30 to 6pm, which would take in Blue Peter, News Round and Neighbours, the evening yeah. the evening edition of Neighbours, uh, with a slice of Battenberg, some of the happiest times of my childhood. <laughs> so yeah, my earliest TV memory was watching Peter Duncan, I can, it's so, such a vivid memory, on this flickering black and white TV screen. What was kind of your living room setup like? And and what were you like as a child? I think it's it's so interesting when I look back now and I think about TV that I was watching. And I get the impression we were quite similar in that love TV, but also maybe big readers. Yes, hugely. And I think there's so much that aligns those two activities because in each world you are having on one hand, a solitary experience because it's you watching the TV screen, but you're also having a connected experience because you're being involved in this world of characters and plot and imagination. So what kind of child was I? I absolutely loved reading and I loved time on my own. And I spent a lot of time on my own. So we grew up in the countryside. So when I was four, we moved to rural Northern Ireland and we had the luxury of being surrounded by fields and sheep and we had a donkey. (laughs) So I could go and escape and sit in a rhododendron bush for hours and read books. And so I was, yeah, I think I was, I was very good at making my own entertainment and I what I lo- I enjoyed my own company and I also had quite strong opinions and that's something that I think is so interesting because as a child you don't know what you don't know and mm. then as you grow older you start to question your own instincts and your own opinions and I my experience was I started to take on too much of other people's opinions and I kind of lost my own way a little bit And I feel like now I'm in my 40s, I'm kind of regaining that again. And I sort of do know who I am and I do know what I think. But as a child, I I was pretty, yes, I had strong opinions about things and I kind of knew what I liked. So I knew what TV programmes I liked. I knew that Janet Ellis was my favourite Blue Peter presenter. Um, I I had very strong ideas about the world. And I loved animals. I was obsessed and still am with animals. So we had a family cat along with our donkey called Puss in Boots, (laughs) wildly original. (laughs) Uh, And so, yes, I loved cats and I loved kind of nature books and nature programmes as well. So you went on to study at Cambridge, you studied history and you secured a double first, which is no small feat. What were you like as a student? When did it occur to you to become a writer? I know that Mm. when you were, I think it was like 12 or something, you had a a column in the local paper or something. So, you know, tell me about that journey from discovering language and books and literature and how that impacted you. Yes, well, that's such a, a... A case in point, like age 12, I did. I had a fortnightly column in the jo- the Derry Journal um, and and I never lacked for opinions. I always knew what I was going to write about. <laughs> um, so my journey started really, really early. I remember being aged four and wanting to write books, which is a very odd thing to know and to admit because I didn't have any writers in my family. And age four, you don't really know what an author is, but I Mm. knew that I loved books. I think that's what it was. And I was very lucky and privileged to have parents who took books seriously and who read to me and our home was always filled with books. And I just loved the power of finding a story within this tangible object. It was just, it seemed so extraordinary to me. So age four, I knew I wanted to write. And then 
we moved to Northern Ireland and I was lucky enough to meet a journalist, a real life journalist, when I was 12 and she was staying at a local health farm. So we lived down the road from the only health farm in Northern Ireland and she was called Linda Gilby and I owe her so much because I got to meet her and I was like, what advice do you have for an aspiring writer? And she said, start now. And she took me seriously. She said, start now and write to all your local newspaper editors and say you want to write. And that's what I did. And amazingly, the Derry Journal gave me a chance to write regularly. And it remains the only column I'd ever had until, I think, three years ago, uh, I got offered another column. So that was how I started out. And I, I always loved journalism for the writing. I know some people love journalism for the scoops and the investigations. I always loved it for the writing. <laughs> Kelly, I was Me making your face that is like very <laughs> representative of how I feel. And so it was always going to be a way for me to learn my craft. Mm. And then when I was 29, I got a job on The Observer and I was a feature writer there and they allowed me to work from home a couple of days a week, which at that time was just an amazing thing to be offered. And I therefore had more spare time and I started writing my first novel and that's how it all came about. Can I ask, so when you left university, did you write for a paper whilst you were at uni? Or, you yes. Know? So uh, you were kind enough to mention my degree there. And I just want to say that like, I was watching television throughout all of that. <laughs> and so <laughs> if you're listening to this and you have a child who you're worried is watching too much television, don't worry. Because actually, <laughs> I found it a really, really important means of relaxing in a high pressure mm. academic environment. So yeah, at Cambridge. So I basically got work experience all the way through because Linda Gil Gilby had told me that that was really important. So I would be writing off to papers left, right and centre being like, can I come in for a week's work experience? And that led to an internship at the Daily Telegraph when I was 17. And then I like founded a school newspaper and made myself the editor. And then I went to university and I was working for the university paper Varsity. So I did that throughout. Um, and then after doing my history degree, I was going to apply for postgraduate journalism courses. There are some terrific ones out there, particularly City University. And it just so happened that at a careers evening, I met a guy from the Evening Standard and he was the deputy editor of the Londoner's Diary, which is essentially a kind of highbrow gossip column. I've no idea what he was doing at that careers evening, but I'm forever grateful that he went. And I said, oh, could I have some work experience? And I went in for a week's work experience and they offered me a job off the back of that. I brought in a couple of stories and they offered me a job. And so I went straight from graduating to the Evening Standard, which was an incredible stroke of luck. And I, I, I feel so grateful for that because it's very, very hard to break into media. Um, and I spent a year there. And then I did my familiar thing of this time I was emailing because technology had caught up. So I didn't have to write handwritten letters and post them anymore. Uh, I then just did my usual thing of emailing all sort of section editors on major newspapers saying, you know, I've had a year on the Evening Standard and I'd really like to be a news reporter. And the Sunday Telegraph offered me a three-month trial and that became a staff job. And and from there on in, I sort of, my my course was set. Yeah. Can I ask, at schools, and especially if you're academic, you're kind of fed this narrative that if you do well at school and you get good exam results, then you'll go to a good university. And if you go to a good university, you'll get a good job and a good job means good pay and, and that mm -hmm. you'll be happy. And you're kind of fed this narrative. And that if you tick all the boxes, that's it. That's yeah. the rest of the You're being a, a great adult, life. yes. <laughs> and then you get there and sometimes, you know, you might love your job, but there are days where it's not going to be as good. You know, did you ever have to grapple with that was there ever a feeling that you didn't want to be in journalism anymore or that you weren't going in the right direction or you were never going to be quote-unquote yeah. successful? It's a brilliant question. And yes, hugely. And you're so right that when we look back or when we're asked for our professional CVs, it becomes this sort of smooth motorway in the retelling, mm. going from point A to B and seamlessly to C. And of course, it wasn't like that because I, you know, I was paying my own rent and quite often having to take a gamble on whether a three-month internship would ever turn into a job and putting expenses on my credit card that I became very overdrawn on that was in, that was all incredibly stressful 
And when I was at the Sunday Telegraph, as you will know, immediate can be so uncertain and you're at the mercy of whoever your editor is. And there was a succession of editorial changes. And I felt that every time a new editor came in, I had to prove myself again and I would take a step back and I would be doing the news reporting that I felt I'd already proved myself and I wanted to kind of move on from. And I remember very vividly a point when I was 27 of thinking, I think I'm done with journalism now. And I remember crying before I went into work every day and thinking, I'm not sure that this is quite as it should be. And I went into therapy for the first time. And I'm very grateful for that now because I needed to do some work on myself. And I hung on in there partly because I started applying for jobs outside journalism and I got offered one and it was this extraordinary job it sounded amazing it was like an in-house historian <laughs> but for a but for a big corporation and they they were very keen to offer me the job and then I just got to the final stage of that and I realized it didn't excite me and the the great privilege of what I was doing was the however hard it was or however unstable it felt, it also felt like I was at the centre of things, that I had this ringside seat to what was happening in the world. And yeah. I would get invited to things that I would never get invited to as a as a non-journalist. You know, sort of events in the Houses of Parliament or opportunities to interview celebrities or going to the General Synod of the Church of England and, and meeting extraordinary characters and right down to meeting grief-stricken families who had lost their children during the war in Iraq, like things like that, it's an extraordinary privilege. And I just mm. realised that that was more important to me than any personal feeling I might have about it. So I stuck it out and and it came good in the end. And I did work very hard to make that the case. But I think that's what I tell people now. I'm so lucky that I have a lot of listeners to my podcast who are in their 20s and who feel lost and who feel that their career isn't going in the right direction. And I always say it's okay to experiment in your 20s. In fact, that's what you should be doing. You should be trying on different identities. You should be trying lots of different things. Life is not a race. And just because other people seem to have it sorted doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. And I'm quite glad that I was able to take those risks in my 20s and to get here. But getting here was never actually my plan. <laughs> but it's so much better than the plan I had for myself. So true. I mean, you have this plan in your head, but it, it, I mean, I, I never even wanted to be a journalist until suddenly I thought, well, I, I love writing. How, how does one make money from that? Yes. Well, it seems journalism is probably the, the better option than writing books to no one. Exactly. Anywhere, that was exactly you know? my thought process. Yeah. How then did you go from, so you worked on The Observer for nine years, eight, nine eight years? Eight years, yeah. Eight years. Um, and then is that when you decided to go freelance? And during that freelance period, when and how did How to Fail come to you? Okay. So after the Sunday Telegraph, I went to the Mail on Sunday for a year as a feature writer. And then I got a job at The Observer as a feature writer, which on paper was my absolute dream job. Uh, can you, at age 29, getting to be a feature writer on The Observer, which was my favourite paper, the one I read every weekend, which had some of my favourite writers on it. And it was amazing in so many ways. But I think I felt so grateful to be there mm. <laughs> that I just never, I never progressed because I was just so happy to be there. And I was so wanting to please everyone that I said yes to everything that they asked me to do. And I don't think I necessarily had focus for what I wanted my career to be. And of course, if you make yourself indispensable in that way that you're saying yes to the things that other people don't want to do, and you're working extra hard, then no one's ever going to move you on from that role. And no one's ever going to offer you a pay rise unless you ask for it. And even then, they probably won't because they know that you're grateful, so grateful to be there. So I got caught in this sort of double bind. And after eight years, uh, I started to realise that I had to be the one responsible to make a dramatic shift in my life. And it happened to coincide with some seismic changes in my personal life where I was going through a divorce and ultimately unsuccessful fertility treatment. And all of those things sort of imploded together. And I left the Observer with no job to go to 
just hoping that I could make it work as a freelancer. And that's why I'm genuinely so grateful to the Radio Times, because they offered me a contract, Ben Preston offered me a contract to write a certain number of pieces a year. And that was the one thing that I had in my back pocket. I was like, okay, it's going to be okay because I've got this source of income. And then it turned out to be one of the best decisions I've ever made because I felt really liberated and there was lots of work and I spent a year saying yes to everything and I just really enjoyed being in charge of my own time. So I liked the liberation of it and then I happened to get into another relationship and that ended three weeks before my 39th birthday at which point I felt personally very like a failure in my own eyes because it felt like here I was looking down the barrel of my 40s not where I thought I would be and unsure how to get to that point and I felt really devastated and if you've ever been through heartbreak you will know that you can't really listen to music (laughs) because just makes you feel like the star of your own dispiriting indie movie. And so I started listening to podcasts and I realised that they were an amazing place to have intimate conversations. Mm. And because I'd had this taste of liberation from being a staff newspaper journalist, and because I'd become sort of increasingly disillusioned with the formulaic celebrity print interview, I realised that podcasts could be a way of doing the kind of interview that I really wanted to do. And because I was feeling like a failure, I wanted to ask people about when they felt like failures too and what failure had taught them, if anything, and how they got through it. And that was the the starting point for How to Fail. And so I launched it in July 2018 with no expectation and no clue what I was doing. I eBayed my wedding dress. I paid for a sound producer. But other than that, I did it all myself. And I I drew the logo with some felt-tip pens one night, and it's still my logo now. Um, I DM'd a hummus company on Twitter to be my sponsor. And they, they sponsored me a minimal amount, but they did give me a lot of free hummus. And I just did eight <laughs> episodes. And I was like, if it only exists as that, it's enough. Because it was, exa- it was the first creative project I'd done that had... I'd been in control of from beginning to end and that had only happened because of me mm. and it it was such a beautiful thing and then it had this real resonance with people that I hadn't expected and which I'm so grateful for and that's how it started and it, it has snowballed since then. And I was going to say I remember interviewing Helen Fielding and who is one of my many icons. She's amazing. She's so smart, Helen Fielding. Oh my gosh, she's a real bloody hoot as well. Yeah. And she said um, that she she tried all this very serious journalism and the one thing, serious quote unquote, uh, the one thing that really took off was her column based on Bridget, yeah. which would then become to be this huge franchise, Bridget Jones. And I I bring that up just because I think often when you don't have an expectation of something, when it's just something that comes from originality and love and a genuine desire to create something beautiful, Mm. that's often when it finds its audience immediately. And that's what happened with How to Fail. I mean, I remember listening to it really early on. And (laughs) do you know, but do you know, and and it spread like wildfire. I mean, yeah. it has such a strong community. I always know when it's when the series is back on because it's always in the charts. So you see it, even if you like for some reason haven't been on Spotify or whatever, it comes up pretty much immediately. But that must have been such a validating feeling because when you create something, it is vulnerable and it's personal. Mm. But what you also did was you opened up yourself and asked other people to to bring their vulnerability and to have that conversation. And it was accepted and adored by people who also want to feel their vulnerability is heard yeah. and, and, is, and it's a safe space. Thank you so much for saying all of that and for completely getting it and for being one of my first listeners. I'm so moved by that. I really am. And I, I think you're so clearly brilliant at what you do that... It feels so lovely to have been in your ears during that, like during, (laughs) if that's not too much kind of overreach, like it feels very special to me that you are a listener and that you're, and that you're so aware of the things that How to Fail tries to do. Um, 
and part of that that community. And you're completely right that it's one of the greatest gifts life has given me because I feel accepted as I really am. And for so much of my life, I was trying to pretend to be better than I thought I was in order to be accepted. So all of those years at The Observer, I was trying to be to be perceived as sort of more serious, more highbrow, more clever than I actually felt. And for all of those years in relationships, I was trying to work out what the other person wanted me to be and try and be the best version of that. And with How to Fail, very quickly, all of that just went. And I felt able to be myself in interviews. But not only that, it felt like people were responding to my being myself in interviews. And they liked it when I shared something of my own vulnerability. And that was so liberating for me. And and I feel very kind of grateful to my guests that they've been willing to open up and that they do feel it's a safe space. And I think that's partly because I asked them in advance for three failures that they don't mind talking about. So they've already set the parameters of the discussion. But it's also that I'm, I genuinely, I'm on their side. I tend to think people are great. I tend to think people are nice and have interesting things to say. And that's my starting point, rather than the era that I came of age in print journalism. The hatchet job was very much the interview that people wanted to read. And there are some brilliant examples of that form that are wildly entertaining and examples of great writing. But I never felt that I read them and knew more about the person who was being interviewed. Yeah. And and so it's been really nice to discover that there is an audience for the sort of interviewing that I do. And now I'm in the extremely fortunate position of being able to be my true self. Yeah. Uh, just as I'm talking to you today and when I record a podcast tomorrow or when I write a book or uh, when I'm on the sofa watching Drive to Survive with Justin. Like, every single aspect of my life, I'm being me and that's really yeah. nice. Do you still get nervous ahead of interviews? Yes. <laughs> that never goes. <laughs> I feel I know, oh. but, but it gets better because it's that Malcolm Gladwell thing of if you spend 10,000 hours doing something even though you're nervous, you know that you've done it before. And so you start to trust yourself more. Like, I I still, as you probably know, I prepare a lot for interviews. And that's partly to mitigate the nerves. So I'm like, I want to prepare and I want to show someone the respect of having prepared. And I can tell you've prepared so well for this interview and you know everything. And I'm so honoured by that. Um, But that's my way of mitigating it. I get very nervous before live shows, but I also freakishly enjoy it as well. Yeah. <laughs> I remember interviewing one of my first big profile pieces I did was with Emily Maitlis. Oh, love Emily Maitlis. Oh god, and I was like, wow, okay. She's a stellar interviewer, let alone like, you know, this is going to be crazy. So I remember sitting down with her and I remember one of the things I asked her was about preparation. She said, "Women, it doesn't matter how far along you go in your career, women will always prepare more than most of their counterparts because we can't, and I am paraphrasing here, but because we feel that at some level that needs to kind of still take up space. So I I find it really interesting. And and I try to, I try to be honest. I think this is where I've come to it is is you can't know everything. So if someone talks to me about a television show that I haven't seen, I remember when I first started doing this being like, oh, goodness, I, I don't know what that show is from the 60s. But I mean, I wasn't even a thought then. Yes. I was, and that's, <laughs> I think you're totally right. I think we all, as a society, need to get better at saying, I don't know. There's such, oh, that's what I was talking to Chimamanda about. Yes, that was it. Oh I'm my just, God. <laughs> Chimamanda and Gossi Adichie. So we were talking yes. before we started recording about her phenomenal wreath lecture. And I remember her being asked a question by an audience member afterwards. And she said, I don't know enough about that. Or, And I went up to her afterwards and said, thank you for saying that. Because there was such judicious power in her yeah. saying, I don't know. Yeah. It was amazing. It was a sort of mind-blowing moment to me. And it was actually, it was just like a powerful thing to say, not a weak thing to say. And we live in a culture where we're constantly expected to know what we think about everything. And we're constantly expected to know the right things and to express the correct opinions. And social media 
can feel so binary and so scary sometimes that actually it's so much better to say, I don't know. And it's also so much better to say, I'm sorry if you've got something wrong. And that's something I've learned through the podcast. I had a, a really beautiful email from a trans listener saying that they had felt excluded by what a particular guest has said and the woolly headed phrasing of one of my questions. And I completely understood where that person was coming from because they had taken the time to express it with such compassion. And I said sorry. And we had a really lovely email exchange. And I also made an apology on the podcast. And that felt so much better than being defensive. Because actually, we can't know everything. You're so right. We can't possibly know everything about everything. And we need to listen to the people who know more about their particular area of expertise. Yeah, because I found that for listeners who haven't watched it, I would recommend going away and watching Chimamanda's Wreath Lecture, which I'm sure you can find on BBC Sounds. But that it was such a beautiful conversation about self-censorship and how we're so afraid to have open debate and conversation because we're scared of getting it wrong. And if we're scared of getting it wrong, we're scared of what social media has created, these polarised opinions where if you come out of your camp and you say something slightly wrong, that you're going to get demonised and cancelled. And so that's stopping conversation and it's stopping speech. And I mean, even on smaller levels, just being kinder to yourself, you know, sometimes I do an interview, something in my research has gone wrong. I've read, you know, I've mispronounced a name or I've said something that isn't quite right. But just being kind to yourself and letting someone correct you and also not getting embarrassed by that. Being like, okay, sorry. Exactly. That's fine. Now, I want to ask, obviously your books or How to Fail was an overnight success in in terms of of the book that was also released. My first bestseller as well. Your first bestseller. (laughs) First Um, Sunday Times bestseller, yeah. But can I ask, I mean, so you had written uh, novels before that and I wanted to kind of pick about the success Mm. of if something that you write and you put out into the world isn't deemed a success in terms of it doesn't become an instant bestseller or uh, it doesn't have five novel awards or or whatever. um, Does it become difficult to keep writing? Another really good question. It doesn't It's not difficult to keep writing for me because writing is my passion and my vocation. I cannot imagine a world in which I wouldn't write. So I will always do it, even if there's no audience for it. But having an audience for it makes it so much more rewarding. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're right that I had written three novels before How to Fail no, it's four novels, four novels before I launched How to Fail. And three of those had barely attracted any attention whatsoever. And there were some really nice reviews, but not a lot of sales. And at no point did I feel disheartened by that. I just felt that's more motivation for me to keep going. And with my fourth novel, The Party, I had left The Observer and so I was able to go freelance and I put more time into it. And that one was my first quote-unquote objective success. Tube posters and the like. It was a Richard and Judy book club pick. And and that felt really amazing because I felt like I had finally been seen for the writer that I hoped to be. But it definitely... It didn't make me feel my previous three novels were not successful in and of their own right, because I still think that they're really good books. It's just that the way the publishing industry worked, the publisher I was with then, the kind of books that win literary prizes, like all of that sort of stuff has to be in place. And it's actually separate from the quality of the work itself. And that's something that I've really realised and had to, because I am an innately competitive person. And it's important to me to do well. And I am ambitious. And it would be lovely to be deemed worthy of a literary prize. And at the same time, it's irrelevant to why I do what I do and the quality of the writing that I hope I produce. So the work itself is its own reward. And that's what I keep reminding myself, that you know, I know that I'm getting better because the more you do something, it's like we were talking earlier, 
the more you will get better, the more you apply yourself. And, and, and I love writing and the feeling that it gives me when I'm doing it. And it, I need to strive to make any book an expression of what I wanted it to be. And if I've got as close to that as I possibly can, then that for me is its own form of success. Because I've seen, I, I read earlier that I, I think I saw a, a news article or, or something like that when it when the news came out, but it says, you're currently developing your screenplay, so a fictionalised adaptation of How to Fail. It's extremely hard, by the way. Oh, good. <laughs> I don't know why I said yes to it. The people <laughs> I'm working with are so lovely, but oh my gosh, it's so, it's just endless drafting and redrafting. Yeah, so I was going to ask, how does writing for screen differ to <laughs> writing for novels? But I guess that's one. No, it's big a good question. question. It's so interesting because there's such a vogue for novelists to become screenwriters, and it's mm. never actually been appealing to me. I love television and I love cinema, and I see it as a completely different skill set because I really admire people like Sally Wainwright who can write like my friends Phoebe Waller-Bridge who can write blistering yeah. screenplays and I'm like oh Nora Ephron and I'm like oh Michaela Cohen I just look at it and I'm like you're a genius because I could never do that anyway I kept getting offers which is very nice of people but I suppose it's the sort of obvious thing like if you've written a book they'll ask you to write the screenplay and I've never wanted to do it with with my novels partly because of what we were just saying I feel like my novels exist in the way that I wanted them to as close as I could get to it and therefore I'm excited to see what someone else does with it for a different genre but um this lovely production company I love them so much um new pictures came to me about how to fail and they said oh you know have you ever thought of fictionalizing the memoir slash manifesto that you wrote and I hadn't ever thought of it and actually it kind of appealed to me because I knew the material so well because so much of it had drawn from my own life. So the way that it differs for me anyway is that screenwriting is so much more collaborative. And at the outset, if you're lucky, you have other people involved giving you advice and telling you to download Final Draft, the script writing programme, and working out sort of what happens in every scene. And that's really amazing because writing a book is incredibly solitary, which is part of what I love about it, because the flip side of that is that you're in control of the whole world. Things things will happen in your novel if you choose, or your nonfiction book, if you choose for them to happen. And the way that I work is I write a whole first draft and then I'll send it to my editor and get her feedback. But with TV, that feedback is constant and, and from the beginning. And then so many different people have so many different opinions. So the commissioning editor will then come in and be like, actually, I like this, but I don't like that. So can you redo it? <laughs> so you're just like doing that. Honestly, for years, sometimes it's in development for years before anyone might say yes. And most often they'll say no. And I just, I did say <laughs> at a meeting recently, I was like, this is a terrible business model, but somehow <laughs> it works and it, you end up with like amazing creative endeavours. So I'm in the thick of it at the moment. And I, I have to say, I'm really enjoying it. I'm just, I'm not sure that I'm any good at it, but I'm, but they tell me I am, so it's fine. I'm just going to carry on doing I, what I do. I believe in them. I believe that you will be very good at it. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I also wanted to ask, as a broadcaster, you present Sky Arts Book Club live with Andy Oliver, the lovely Andy oh, Oliver. she's heaven. Can I ask, what's it like appearing on TV for the first time? You know, what's it like seeing yourself on screen? What's it yeah. like being on a set in a studio? Yeah, Sky Arts Book Club live happened during the pandemic, actually. It was sort of in between lockdowns, but there were still lots of strict measures in place. So there were lots of various protocols that we needed to follow. And it turned out to be so special almost because of that, because it got it got us out of the house <laughs> every Sunday. And it would be this two-hour live show from 7 to 9pm on a Sunday night. But that was my first experience of presenting television, was doing two hours live. So... I was unbelievably nervous. And then I absolutely loved it. Like I've never loved anything before in that form. And I was so lucky that I was partnered with Andy Oliver, who is 
who's not only become a very dear friend, but is a peerless broadcaster. And she was so kind and generous to me. And that first show, she had an earpiece, but I didn't. And so I could just concentrate on sort of reading the autocue and doing the questions and stuff. And I, and I loved it because it felt like such a team effort and it felt really exciting. And to know that you were beamed into people's sitting rooms was terrifying, but also a real privilege. And people who watched that season also really loved it. They loved being part of that live community. Um, so I I loved the experience of it. I never liked watching myself back on screen. So I try to do as little of it as possible. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's necessary data acquisition for what you can do differently next time. But I try and a bit like we were saying with the book and the reception of the book, I try to divorce myself from how it appears so that I can concentrate with on how it feels when I'm doing it. And then the following seasons were pre-recorded. So we lost the live element. And I really enjoyed that in a in a different way. But there's something about doing it live that gives you just that adrenaline rush that I really, really like. So it's been a joy and it's been a completely different experience and not one I ever imagined for myself. And I've surprised myself with how much I've liked it. So you have this real love of writing and reading which is evident and um i do catch your day's delights on instagram and love the recommendations but um they're now in my newsletter kellyanne my free newsletter that's where they've gone <laughs> free newsletter. i have subscribed although i think oh, on my you. other email so maybe okay. i'm just get up my radio times okay. email because i'm terrible for checking emails so let's talk about friendaholic so it comes out on the 30th of march where did the idea for the book stem from it stemmed from, I had to write, I was contracted to write a nonfiction next. And I sat down and, and remembered this story about a man whose opening gambit at parties was to say, what's your passion? And I was thinking about it because I was like, if I'm going to write a nonfiction book, I need to feel passionate about the subject. I was like, what are my passions? And I thought, cats, books, <laughs> real housewives. I was like, well, I can't write a book. about. I mean, I could write a book about cats, but I don't know how long it would be. Um, and then I thought, friendship. Friendship is the passion of my life. It's my platonic love affair that has seen me through so much. It's been such a consistent support throughout my life, throughout the ups and the downs. And I started thinking about friendship and about how we elevate romantic love so much in our society, but we don't pay a lot of attention to friendship, even though we know it exists, we know it's important. There's not enough language around it. We can't really express what we mean by it. Even the term is so massive as to be diffuse and rendered meaningless because different people imbue it with very different definitions. And it was also during the pandemic. And I realised that the pandemic, I think for many of us, made us reassess our friendships and have a sort of greater understanding of who we wanted to spend time with because our diaries had emptied out overnight. Mm. And we missed certain people and not others. And that was the case with me. I just realised that before the pandemic, I'd spent so much time saying yes to people who asked that I hadn't spent enough time with my core group of friends who never placed those demands on my time. So that was the starting point. And what it became was an exploration of friendship, both its history and its expression, and a personal memoir of how I have experienced friendship. And as part of that, I've interviewed five of my very good friends, each of whom represents a different aspect of what friendship is. So there's Satnam, who I set up on a date with, but we became really good friends rather than boyfriend and girlfriend. There's Charmaine, who brings this incredible clarity to friendship. There's my best friend, Emma. There's my friend, Joan, who's 20 years older than I am, who's like a big sister. And there's my friend, Clemmie, who has been through a really traumatic life change. She had a brain hemorrhage and had to reassess everything about her life, including her friends. And um, that's what is the sort of backbone of the book, which also then is thematic, looks at academic studies around friendship, looks at what Cicero said, looks at what the Real Housewives of Atlanta said about friendship. And uh, that is Friendaholic. And I have loved writing it because it's taught me so much. There was a quote, and I think it's from the intro, that 
I read and it really struck a chord and it was from a philosopher and it says, a false friend is like a shadow. When the sun shines on you, you can't get rid of him. But when the clouds gather over you, he is nowhere to be seen. And I wondered if this book or the process of writing this book helped you establish a way to uh, recognise friendships that are perhaps unhealthy or aren't aren't serving you anymore Mm. and whether you now feel more able to cut ties with people or distance yourself in a way that perhaps before you wrote this book you hadn't. I think it helped me understand people who had distanced themselves from me and it helped me understand that some friendships are forged at a time in your life that you or the other person then outgrow and that there's no shame in that and that it doesn't make you a bad friend for resetting the friendship or removing yourself from it and that you can always honour the friendship for what it was and how it still shapes you. So Nietzsche has some amazing things to say about friendships that are no longer an active part of your life but which will forever change the course of your particular star. And I thought that that was so beautiful. He calls them star friendships. And it's a bit like a volcano. You know, sometimes volcanoes can be dormant for many, many years, but they have forever changed the landscape around them. And that's how I now feel about my past friendships. So I can still be in in a sort of relationship with them, even if the individual is no longer part of my life. And yes, so that has really helped me understand that a friendship is not a failure simply because it ends Mm. and that actually we should prioritise friends who accept us fully for who we are and who understand what our metric of friendship is just as we might understand theirs. So with my best friend Emma, she completely understands that I hate the phone but that my metric of friendship, how I value friendship is generosity of spirit the belief that my friend will think the best of me, whatever the circumstance, and I will do the same for them. And we hit relational depth very quickly. We don't need loads of quality time together face-to-face, but when we do see each other, it's amazing. And it's really important for me to establish that now. So it's made me realise that we need to ask not only ourselves, but potentially suss out what another person might want from a friendship and how they measure it. Yeah. And with Emma, so you record the Best Friend Therapy podcast with her. Yes. Um, but I know that you've spoken about how Emma's opinion on the men you've dated in the past has been very important to you. Yes. Have you ever found it difficult to hear her opinion if it's not necessarily what you want to hear? Not from Emma, because she always expresses it so amazingly. So Emma's also a psychotherapist as well as being my best friend. And so whenever she's had an opinion about someone, either she will not say it until the time is right for me to hear it, or she will express it in a way that is so on my side that I never feel defensive. But I've been guilty of saying something about an ex of hers in a in the in a in a way that was that was really inappropriate and that I really regret because she wasn't ready to hear it and it wasn't my place to say it. And that caused one of the only, only ever distances in our friendship, which neither of us likes talking about now because it's it's so upsetting. But that was my fault, actually, for for believing that delivery of my subjective truth was more important than how she might feel about it. But no, Emma's never been guilty of that. She just expresses opinions in such good ways. And they and I know that it always comes from a place of loving me first. What was your main takeaway from writing the book? Oh, wow. I think in my main takeaway... I mean, how much I love my friends. That sounds like such a cop-out. <laughs> but I spent really wonderful time with the five friends that I interviewed, asking questions that I wouldn't normally ask. Mm. But putting your friend in an interview situation like that is just incredibly revealing. And I love them all in their different ways for their extraordinary generosity and perception about what friendship is. So I think I came away with an even higher regard for what friendship brings into my life. And also that idea of being able to still be in relation to past friendships has been very healing for me. It's not that they're over and that we regret them or we don't like the person anymore. It's that they shaped our lives in a necessary way and they continue to do so. 
Also that Cicero spoke a lot of sense. That's my other takeaway. <laughs> I haven't read any of him. Huh? Yeah, him. Um, I hadn't read very much of him, but he wrote this whole treatise on friendship that was extremely good. So I can highly recommend Cicero. Or your book, in which case... Yes. <laughs> two birds, one stone. Brilliant. Well done, Kellyanne. Thank you for being my publicist there. Yeah, just buy Friendaholic. Don't don't bother with, with the ancients. <laughs> don't bother. It's all in modern here. Um, Elizabeth Day, thank you so much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and the pleasure has been all mine. It was so lovely talking to you. Friendaholic is out now and is also featured as Radio Times' book club pick for the month of April. Join now and receive a book a month for just $14.99. Go to radiotimes.com forward slash friendaholic for information on how to join and T's and C's. If you enjoyed my conversation with Elizabeth Day, you might also enjoy the episode with the author of Bridget Jones, Helen Fielding, or our chat with Dame Emma Thompson. Both can be found by scrolling back in our feed. Please do remember to rate, review and subscribe.